Good evening. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12, please. We've got to continue the pincer movement. Both flanks of Romans pinching the center. Subject again, it's going to be a general subject, is G-A-L. God-approved livingness. Once you find out the universal horizon of the redemption of Christ, you don't have to worry about that anymore. There's a way to live. There's a way that God approves for us to live. There is still, there are still the mandates. Be attentive. Be intelligent. Be reasonable. Be responsible. Most of all, be in love. The love of God. And keep yourselves in it. So tonight, we're going to deal with God-approved livingness on both flanks. Picture the two cherubim, or the cherubim, one on either side of the mercy seat, looking down as the two flanks of Romans. Because right in the center is the mercy seat. God not sparing his son, but freely giving him up on behalf of us all. An act not of penal substitution by a vindictive God, but an act of universal healing by a God who is love. A few moments of silent prayer. Father, when we meet together for these classes as they are in the Word of God, these teachings, we recognize the need for attentiveness. We recognize the fundamental need to be more ready to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools, to be attentive as to what we hear and how we hear. And in fact, entering in the house of God, Be more ready to listen, be quick to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak, and with teachability toward God, courtesy toward one another, receive the implanted, the engrafted word, which becomes salvation in our daily moments, in our daily lives. So we thank you for this opportunity, and we thank you for each person who has chosen to become addressed tonight by the Holy Spirit, to be part of that addressable community, to receive briefing, to receive encouragement, to receive enlivening by the Word of God. We thank you for this privilege And ask for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be realized. Amen. Galatians is also abbreviated by this little title, G-A-L, God-approved livingness. And there may be a hint of where we may go sometime in the future. 
The God-approved livingness is found on both flanks of Romans, the epistle. Remember, generally speaking, on the midweek services or midweek teachings, we're approaching Romans, the epistle, Romans, the epistle, by looking head-on toward it, and there is a left flank and a right flank, left one through four chapters, right flank 12 through 16, those chapters. There's a double center, five through eight, nine through 11. In nine through 11, we are going to be coming back full circle from an insight that we received way back at the farm before we even came here to the Alamo called the Israel of God because Romans 9 through 11 is about the identity of Israel. Who is Israel both in deed and in truth? And what is it that identifies the Israel of God in the present time? And that, again, will be in part of that center. So God-approved livingness is found on both flanks of Romans the epistle. In Romans 4, on the left flank, where we're going to hone in a little bit tonight, or home in. And in Romans 12, 1 through 13, 14, two chapters on the right, specifically dealing with God-approved livingness and the daily life of the Messianic community. On the right flank, we'll begin with Romans 12.1, and I've translated these. All these Romans will be my translations. We're going to have a translation when we're done with this series in about 28 or 30 more hours maybe. So, by the mercies of God, he says in verse 1, I urge you, siblings, to present your bodies to God as a living offering. Consecrated and acceptable to God. We know from 1 Peter 2.5, the reason for our bodies being consecrated and acceptable to God is all spiritual sacrifices like that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and only through him. Present your bodies to God as a living offering. Consecrated and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, please note that word, be reasonable, your reasonable act of worship. Given all that we know about the mercy of God, that it's going to be extended to all in Romans 11.32, given that great mercy of God, by which we do not faint in this life, we do not quit or cave in, in 2 Corinthians 4.1 and 2, given that mercy... There's a reasonable act of worship, you could say, as a response to it. Verse 2, as a result of this, do not be conformed to this. It does not say world, it says age or aeon. Do not be conformed to this. And I'm going to preface it by the word transient, a transient age. This age is specifically defined as being transient, means it's passing by. It's on the way out. It's obsolete and passe. It's kind of defined in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, and there is a, an exceeding weight of glory that weighs much more than those, and it's the weight of glory. While we look, while we look, while we scope, while we are attentive, not to 
the things which are seen, which are passing away, transient, but to the things that are not seen. The things that are not seen are abiding. The things that are seen are transient and evanescent. We're supposed to focus our attention on an age that has broken into the evil age to overcome it, an age that has broken in with what we call the Christ event. As a result of this, he says, do not be conformed to this transient age, but be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking. It's not just a new thinking. It's a new way of thinking and of knowing. Fancy theologians and philosophers call it epistemology, the study of knowing. It's an epistemological transformation. As a result of this, do not be conformed. Please notice that it's transformed by the making new of your way of thinking. So he's saying don't be conformed in your thinking, in your knowing, in your reflecting, in your conclusions, in your judgments that you make in this life. Do not be conformed to this transient age. This age also includes the way of doing things. It's way of doing things. Dog eat dog, get ahead no matter what, hurt whoever you have to to get ahead, all the rest of it. Out. As a result of this, do not be conformed to this transient age, but be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking, resulting in the affirmation of the good, the well-pleasing, and the completely attained will of God, meaning that your transformed thinking will result in a life that's in keeping with God's will to summarize everything in Christ Jesus. So G-A-L, gal, is derived from, and that's why we spent a lot of time prefacing this study now, prefacing it with studies of the liberation of the will. And this kind of gives a definition of how we should live. G-A-L, God-approved livingness, is derived from the liberation of the will, the human will, your will, my will. Meaning, it's liberation from the dominance of sin and the fear that is produced by the devil through the reign of sin. We see this in Romans 8, 14 to 17. We've been adopted as sons not to fear again, but to say Abba. Not to fear as if God is a vindictive or vengeful God. But Abba, Daddy, our Father. Also Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 16, that Jesus Christ destroyed the one who has power over death. That means he uses the reign of death to promote fear in his subjects. We are not under that fear. Perfect love drives it out. So God-approved livingness necessitates the liberation of the will, liberated from the dominance of sin as an apocalyptic power, and from the dominance of the fear that is produced by the devil, also known as Satan, the adversary, the fear that he uses by the reign of death, Hebrews 2:14 to 16. Because the liberated will becomes a component, a crucial component of God-approved livingness. 
I'll say that again. The liberated will becomes a component of God-approved livingness. Because it does, we may describe this God-approved livingness as a liberated livingness. A liberated livingness. Call it freedom if you want, but Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Jesus Christ freed you. So stand fast in that freedom and do not be entangled again with any kind of yoke of slavery. That's sin's dominance, the dominance of fear because of the reign of death, or the dominance of the law that has co-opted sin. You're free from those dominations. You are under, to be under the dominance of God, to have entered the dominance of Jesus Christ, is to be truly under his lordship, and that's freedom. Now, it is more than interesting that one of the more important nuances of meaning for the term justification, a key word in Romans 1 through 4, but also 1 through 8 in other parts, and also throughout Galatians. One of the meanings for justification is liberation. One of the nuances of its meaning is liberation itself. This is especially noteworthy in Romans 6, 7, where Jesus himself is both the one who died, and when he died, all died, in 2 Corinthians five fourteen. that's extremely important to the development of this doctrine. In Romans 6, 7, Jesus himself is identified as both the one who died and the one who was justified or liberated from sin's dominance. When he became sin, it's as if he was overlorded for that time by sin. And in his death and in his resurrection, he was justified or liberated from his apocalyptic enemy. I read recently that fully 100 of the 150 psalms in the psalms of the Old Testament have as a prime component in it a royal sufferer who calls out for God's help from his enemies. We just hit a few of those, but there's 100. And so Jesus Christ is spoken of in the psalms as that royal personage who is delivered from his enemies, sin and death, and raised from the dead, and in that raising, he justifies all of humankind, as we're seeing little by little in our study, like on Sunday morning. So, Jesus himself is both the one who died and the one who is justified, that is, liberated from the apocalyptic enemy called sin. The implication of liberation, therefore, or the term liberation, is a crucial nuance of meaning for the word justification. And the implication is that justification or liberation is not just a one-shot deal in our lives, but an ongoing process in the life, an ongoing process of what we might call rectification and liberation. In the life of the one who has been granted faith, faith is granted to us. Now, if you're attentive tonight, you're going to find some things that we haven't spoken of before, and I'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit to teach you. The individual with a liberated will, and our will is not liberated before 
the apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ catches up with us. We are slaves to sin. And that we can't, whether we're willingly that or unwillingly that, that cannot be overcome by us. So the individual with a liberated will and, more importantly, the liberated community, which we call the church or churches, becomes addressable. That means God can speak to them. They are addressable by God via the Spirit. Anyone who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, not to the individuals, but to the churches. We saw that in Rev the book, Revelation 2, 7 to 11, 2, 17 and 29, and Revelation 3, 6, 3, 13 and 22. All be careful to listen. Be careful to be attentive to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, the communities, the communities become addressable only by liberation of their will. Otherwise, you're addressing people who are enslaved to sin to do something that they cannot accomplish at all. And we still can't after we're liberated. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. So the individual with a liberated will, and the community, the liberated community, becomes addressable by God via the Spirit. And that community has the option, but even the responsibility, we've gone from be reasonable to be responsible, of compliance. So by this liberated will, we too have become addressable by the Spirit of Christ. We, right here tonight, are an addressable community to whom the Spirit can teach and speak, energize, and give freedom. For wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's that freedom. There's that freedom. The freedom to be transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ without travailing and trying. So by this liberated will, we too, here tonight, on the level of our own time, have become addressable by the Spirit of Christ through his emissary, who in this case is his chosen apostle, Paul. It is on the basis of God's ever new and never antiquated that both of those nuances have to be brought into that word kainos for new, ever new and never antiquated, they never get old, ever new and never antiquated mercies. On the basis of these ever new and never antiquated mercies, our wills have been liberated and addressable with the urgent appeal to present our bodies as an offering to God. Therefore, there is a responsibility that remains even after we are gloriously incited with or given the insight of the universal horizon as well as the unlimited depth of the cross of Christ. Along with the liberated will, God-approved livingness derives from an epistemological renewal and that simply means a radical adjustment of our thinking. 
Really, one of the biggest things that has to happen is we have to stop thinking about God as a vindictive, vengeful God. And we have to go from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, to the biblical message of Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And that even means a change of thinking with regard to the atoning work of Christ, that it is not a penal substitution, a penalty paid by him as much as it is a movement by God for the healing of the human race, the reconciliation of the sinful human race. This is a radical change that happens. And so along with a liberated will, another component is that Gal... God-approved livingness derives from an epistemological renewal which radically adjusts our thinking and our knowing, our way of knowing, to the age that has come with the Christ event. It has come apocalyptically. It has come invasively. It has come as a, an assault on the age, the evil age, the developments of which we see all around us all the time. The Christ event is otherwise known, as Paul puts it starkly in Galatians, the cross of Christ, which envelops not just his death, but his passion and suffering, death and burial, resurrection, ascension and exaltation, as well as the prelude of his incarnation. For in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So, this means no longer calculating in our mind or making judgments according to the flesh. And the flesh there means that is, it's the same as, in conformity with the old age. Flesh, cosmos, world of the old age. Cosmos and aeon are both Interchangeable in some regards. But this means, this change means no longer calculating. No conformity to this age means no longer calculating or making judgments according to the flesh or in conformity with the old eon and its way of doing things. An eon that is already in the process of passing away. We know this from Romans 13, 11 to 12, where Paul gives the image of a nighttime. The night is far spent. The present age, the present evil age, spoken of as the night, is almost over. And the day is at hand. The day being the messianic age that is already broken in. It's even now here, but not completely yet. Also, John, 1 John 2.8, Paul and John is a study that is a double lens for us to see the most clearly that we could possibly see as Christians in this age. Paul and John, John and Paul. And there's another example of it. In 1 John 2.8, John says, the darkness is passing away already. The darkness is this present evil age in Galatians 1.4. It's already passing away. Sometimes you see it in the minutest little things like the latest hip or in or in vogue saying, clever little saying. 
it won't be a clever little saying in a month. There'll be another clever little saying because the age is passing away now so fast before our eyes. But the word of God abides forever. Not just a bunch of clever sayings. The word of our God abides forever. The flesh withers, dries up, fades away. But the word of our God abides forever. The age that's passing is like the darkness that passes away. It's like the flesh, the grass that withers and fades away. The word of God has made the age that is called the messianic era. Christ's coming instituted it. We think according to that. Paul describes his own radical epistemological conversion. We'll call it a conversion in 2 Corinthians 5.16, where he famously said there that though he once knew, he once knew, knew, People, according to the flesh, according to the definition of the cosmos or the aeon, the present age, which is according to a measure and a standard of the old transient age. He once knew people according to the measure of the old transient age, which for him as a Jew meant he knew them as either fulfilling the law of Moses or not. And if not, well, they came under the Romans 118 Wrath of God banner. Once he knew people according to the flesh, that is according to the measure and standard of the old transient age, but he now no longer knows people that way. Something happened. He has an entirely new perceptivity, a way of thinking, a way of perceiving that goes along nicely with his new liberated livingness. Once he said, I even knew Christ. I even knew the Messiah according to the flesh, according to the weights and measures table, we could say, of this present age. But now, obviously, Paul certainly knows him that way no longer. Not since God was pleased to apocalyptically reveal Christ to him in Galatians 1.12 and 1.16. Now he says the love of Christ dominates me. The love of Christ, the love of Christ dominates me. Because you see in my new way of thinking I've come to a judgment after reflection. That if one died for all then all died. That's more important than we think. Now a new way of knowing, thinking, reflecting, and judging, deliberating and deciding controls him. For he has judged this, that if one died for all, then all died. When we come to realize that God is not vindictive or vengeful and that that does not define his justice, but that his judgments are salvific. One of the reasons why Paul said his judgments are past finding out. They're unfathomable. Because in the old way of thinking, you only think of judgment in terms of vengeance, in terms of punishment, in terms of the gavel dropping down and a sentence being passed. But God's judgments are saving judgments, salvific judgments. And that's what changes our thinking.
the judgments we might have had on some misbehavior is now a saving judgment. When we come to realize that God is not vindictive or vengeful and that his judgments are salvific, we too begin to judge salvifically in the light of salvation. So there's a way of living that goes with this gospel of the universal saving significance of Christ and of the universal impact of his cross. All human beings are now perceived by Paul as having been included in Christ's death. And if in his death, so also in his resurrection, which is his justification. He now sees the new creation as all humanity in Christ Jesus. Eventually, all of created reality in all of its times. So the urgent appeal that Paul makes, and we're going to go to the left flank. We're starting at the right and going to the left here and shortly into Romans 4, so be ready. But the urgent appeal that Paul makes to his siblings, Adelphoi, in Romans 12.1 and following, ought to be considered as a great compliment to you and me. It's a compliment for the apostle of Christ to call us brothers and sisters, siblings. It's a compliment. For it recognizes that those whom he addresses are in Christ with him. The fact that this act of presentation of one's body to God is a reasonable act, logikon, logikon, logically reasonable act of worship, also implies or declares openly that we are all priests because it's priests that offer sacrifices or present offerings. And so this has the same power as Revelation 1.5, that Jesus Christ has washed us by his blood, liberated us literally. Luo means to it. He liberated us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his father. So we should be complimented by this. The fact that this act of presentation of one's body to God is a reasonable act of worship means that we are priests with the authority to offer sacrifices to God. Spiritual sacrifices are what Peter calls them that are acceptable to God through and because of Jesus Christ. That again is 1 Peter 2.5. So the disposition the very thing that's in the mainspring of your being, in the mainspring of your knowing and my thinking and my knowing, in the very mainspring, the heart of our hearts, where there is disposition and intention, intentionality it's called. The very disposition and intentionality of mind, the inclination of mind of the old transient age happens to be arrogance derived from the way of knowing of the old age. Paul was riddled with it, and that's why he sought to kill this new breed of people called followers of Jesus. The disposition and intentionality of mind of the old transient age is arrogance leading to envy, leading to violence and murder also. 
And that arrogance is derived from the way of knowing, the way of thinking, the way of judging and deciding and determining of the old age, also known as the flesh, leading to human boasting. So that's why Paul goes on to say in Romans 12:3, didn't think we'd get this far. For he says, through the grace that was given to me. He's talking here about apostolic grace. Whether we like it or not, God selects and elects certain people in the Lord to tasks that other people do not have and to authority that people do not have. Paul's an apostle. He said he called his apostleship grace in one word, in one breath in Romans 1 5 he called Rufus in 16 chapter 16 Rufus elect in the Lord that there are those elected in the Lord to special purposes to special authority to special gifts to special otherwise where are we where is the church without that Paul was elected to be a master builder of the church. He was elected to be a special emissary. In fact, God's apostle to the nations. Now, nobody else can say, I'm the apostle to the nations. Only Paul. He was elected in the Lord for that. Or you can be like the embittered Miriam, Moses' sister, and say, what makes you special, Moses? Aren't we all prophets of God, etc., etc.? Moses didn't react. He just kind of, he, every time that happened to him, he kind of fell on his face and went to God. He ducked and let the abuse go Godward, and God would handle it. I love the famous time she got all upset because Moses, his, her brother, married a black woman. So God responded to that by turning her white with leprosy, pure white. That teaches us two kinds of lessons. One, obviously racism is stupid. But it also teaches us that there really isn't such a thing as black and white. If you want it to be, you want to see a real white person, you have to see a leper. Besides, now that we can spit in a tube and find out where we're from, we're going to find we almost all have a mix that's just like everybody else's mix. Ultimately, we're all from one blood anyways, as Paul said in Acts. So what's... What's the axe to grind? If you read Acts, you don't have an axe to grind. But there's always people that, even though called of God, are, that's why justification or rectification is an ongoing transformation and liberation, because we can slide right back into the old age way of thinking any second. And everybody without exception in the old age has a bias about their own beginnings and heritage. I don't care who you are. A lot of finger pointing going on today. It's worse than ever in this country and it's going to reach a critical mass. And it won't be God judging us. It'll be self-destruction. It's already lit. The self-destruction of this Proud nation has already been lit. 
The fuse has already been lit. It's only because and people want to call it judgment from God. I'll tell you what will stop it is God stepping on the fuse. For through the apostolic grace that was given to me, I say apostolic because the grace is also authority for him to say this. I say to everyone who is among you, he has the authority that reaches to our building tonight. Everyone among you, not to think of himself. You can add herself if you want, if you feel left out, ladies. Not to think of himself or herself more highly than he or she ought to think. That's central to the whole gospel message of Paul, the whole message of Paul to the Romans. Right here, he commands against all selfish pride rooted in group biases, especially Gentile Christians against Jewish Christians, which he hammers in Romans 11 just before this, as well as Jewish Christians against Gentile ones, as indicated by the speech in Romans 118, and as Paul entered into dialectic with that prejudice all the way through 331. And he said, is God one? Like it says in the Shema Israel, the Lord our God is one. The teacher says, yes. Then God, is he God of the Jews only? The teacher says, no, also of the Gentiles. And Paul said this. Well, then the Jews are justified by the faithfulness of Messiah. And the Gentiles are justified through the same faithfulness. Guess what? The measure of faith that's measured out to us here in Romans 12.3 isn't the measure of your faith measured against somebody else's faith. It's the single standard of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The new measure for judgment. That's something I've never said before, but here, let's read the text. For through the apostolic grace that was given to me, Paul... I say to everyone, each and every one of you, among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Instead, he says, that little word dei is used here. It is necessary, he says, instead it is necessary to think reasonably as each one has been assigned faithfulness. Pistios. Faithfulness. And that's Christ's. As the measure and standard of judgment. What is now the measure and standard of judgment is Christ's faithfulness. Jewish Christian, circumcised, justified by Christ's faithfulness. Gentile Christian, not under the law, not circumcised, not following the the calendar, not eating the kosher foods, justified through the same faithfulness. How am I judging now? I'm judging through the faithfulness of Christ. I'm not judging by the measure of faith that you have that might be smaller or larger than the measure of faith God measured to me. That's not the point here. The new standard of measure is the one faithfulness of Jesus Christ through which we see all humankind. That's unifying. I actually have tranquility in my soul thinking about that. I actually have a sense of peace. I actually believe with Paul that Christ died for all humankind and that when he died, all died. I actually believe that. And slowly, in my case, not radically and fast like Paul, but slowly, in my case, the love of Christ is beginning to dominate my thinking and control my thoughts. And I don't claim any 
I've got the same insight as Paul. When I read, the more I read Paul, the more I see how far away I am from the insight that God gave him. I did not see Jesus the Nazarene on the road to Damascus. Nor was I caught up into the third heaven to hear unspeakable things. Now let's go to the left flank. Romans 4. Remember, my whole strategy here is pincer, pincer strategy. Press from the right flank. Press from the left flank. Squeeze the center. And we'll spend some time just dealing with that double center before we finish Romans. And I'm going to leave it open. You can, nobody's going to do a perfect commentary on Romans. That's insane. Someone will say, that was a magisterial commentary so-and-so wrote on Galatians. Magisterial meaning it's the one that judges all other. Nobody does that. And Paul leaves so much stuff open because he's a creative teacher and he's not a a, uh, road hog. He doesn't want to say, I'm going to get this all in. He leaves a lot of stuff open for us to think through and reflect upon and apply. It's amazing how much he does. Let's look at the left flank, Romans 4. The dialectic began in Romans 1.18. It continues now in Romans 4. The teacher that we've dealt with before, that's the competitive missionary Jewish Christian teacher. He's a Christian. He's a Jewish Christian. Or he may be a Gentile proselyte to Judaism teaching Gentiles. But he's got an, he has an opposing mission to Paul. Paul's is a law-free or circumcision-free ministry of the gospel of grace, of the gospel of the grace of God with uncontingent grace. This other teacher has a missionary endeavor to try to make Gentiles Jews through beginning with circumcision of the males, then leading the males and the females into a calendar obedience to the Jewish feasts, and into the kosher meals, which leads in turn to the demand to fulfill all of Moses' law and thereby to become Israel, true Israel. Paul doesn't cotton to that. So the teacher says, well, then, if the Torah stands tall as a testimony of Messiah's fidelity, that's Paul's Romans 3.31, then Are you destroying the law, he says to Paul? Where's the law come in? Is the law destroyed by what you're saying, Paul? Paul concludes in Romans 3.31. No, it's the law literally, I won't won't say literally, metaphorically what he's saying is the law stands tall. The Torah now has a job that it never had before, and that's of a testimony of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance. So the teacher is reasoning here in one. Well, then if the Torah is supposed to stand tall as a testimony of Messiah's fidelity, like you said in Romans 3, 30 and 31, then what shall we say about what Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has not found but obtained? Obtained. That's the sense here of the word hurisco. Where we get the word eureka, it does generally mean to discover, but here it means to, what has he obtained? What are we going to say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What has he obtained? For in verse 2, the teacher is still talking now. The legalist teacher, as we might call him. For since Abraham was justified by works, he's saying not if, but since, he's proving, he wants to say Abraham was justified by works, and since he was, He has something to boast about. 
So the teacher is ready to argue that Abraham was not justified by God's pure grace, but by circumcision, as seems to be the case from Genesis 17, 8 and following. But Paul says this, and I love this little short, terse answer. But this is not how God sees it. God doesn't see it that way. God doesn't see Abraham obtaining something from God and being justified by works. That's not how God sees it. You see, Paul's gone through that radical epistemological change of thinking and knowing. So he sees as God sees. The God's word to the nations, or God's word, is the name of the translation. The God's word translation published by God's word to the nations, puts it this way. And I said, this is repetition of where we were before. I'm kind of pulling up where we were before. But Romans 4, 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, listen carefully to this translation, because it does what you're supposed to do in Nehemiah 8, 8. It gets the sense of what's being said here. The sense is not Abraham being forensically justified through his belief It's not that at all. Notice what it says. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and that faith was regarded by God to be his approval of Abraham. This is a perspicuous translation, a almost ingenious one, and it can be compared with J. Lewis Martin's rendering of Galatians 3.6. He didn't do a magisterial rendering. Commentary on Galatians, but he did the be- one of the best ones yet, I think. He, his translation of Galatians 3.6, which reflects Romans 4.3, he says, Things were the same with Abraham. He trusted God, and as the final act in the drama by which God set Abraham fully right, or fully rectified him, God recognized Abraham's faithful trust. What he did was he recognized Abraham's faithful trust as a God-approved livingness. Now, I've supplied the translation from God's Word translation because I believe it gives the right sense, Nehemiah 8.8 of the verse. God approved of Abraham's faith, or as Lewis Martin put it, M-A-R-T-Y-N, God recognized his faithful trust. The point that Paul makes, listen very carefully to this. This is one of the finest tuned cuts that we're making here. This is brain surgery in the exegetical realm. The point that Paul makes is that Abraham's faithful trust in God was approved by God before Abraham was circumcised. Moreover, on top of that, Abraham's faithful trust was demonstrated and expressed dramatically and climactically after his circumcision in his offering of Isaac in Genesis 22, his offering of Isaac through resurrection faith showed that this faithful trust was heartily approved by God after his circumcision. So Abraham was living in a God-approved livingness before his circumcision, 
and after his circumcision. So what does that make uncircumcision and circumcision then? Nothing. That's why Galatians comes in in Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing. What's really something is a faith working by love. That is a faith that's been ignited by love and a faith that works with love or works to love. Consequently, faithful trust is a divinely approved livingness. It's already in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. There's a God-approved livingness, whether by uncircumcised Greeks or circumcised Jews. See, Paul's pushing for unity here. You guys that are making something out of circumcision ought to realize that your father Abraham was approved by God by his God-approved livingness before circumcision, with circumcision wasn't in the picture. And you Gentiles that are judging your Jewish brethren as being part of an Israel that God has forsaken and abandoned fail to recognize that even after circumcision, God approved of their, of Abraham's livingness too. So law and not law don't mean a thing. Now, if grace was defined as swing, we could say if it ain't got that swing, then it don't mean a thing. So then, that goes way back, even before my birth in Whiskey Falls. I mean, Hoosick Falls, nicknamed Whiskey Falls. So, neither circumcision, because <laughs> it was a bar in every corner, and I think I was born in one of them. I'm not, no, there was a, it was a house. It was, it's a house. It was a little ranch house I was born in. But anyways, it's called a health center. So I'm not a Vermonter. I was born in New York State, so I'm a New Yorker. See how I wander? Be attentive, Nap. Now listen. So neither circumcision or uncircumcision or anything. What's really something is faith working by love. But watch where this goes. There's two references to uncircumcision and circumcision being meaningless and something else being meaningful. In Galatians 5, 6, what's meaningful is a faith working by love. That defines God-approved livingness. Period. A faith or a faithfulness, participation in Christ's faithfulness, working by love, instigated by love, and resulting in love as a fruit of the Spirit. That's what matters. But there's another section where Paul says in Galatians 6.15 where he says circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean a thing, but what means something is a new creation. And then he says, may mercy and peace be upon all those who walk according to this rule. What rule? The rule, faith working by love, Those who walk according to this rule are the Israel of God, he says in 6.16. And that doesn't mean they're the only Israel that there will ever be. It means they are the proleptic people of God. Whether circumcised or uncircumcised doesn't matter. They're Israel because they're in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. And they're Israel in praxis, 
or as John calls it, both in deed and in truth, both in deed and authenticity, they are Israel, God's Israel, because indeed they love God. Indeed they love their neighbor as themselves. The lovers of God are Israel indeed, but the love is the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit's coming into this argument. He's already been introduced. I know that's a lot to handle right now, but let's continue just for a moment. What is the rule by which the Israel of God walks? It's God-approved livingness right now in this juncture of the ages in 6, 15 to 16. Well, just relate that in your own time, on your own, to Galatians 5, 5 and 6, Galatians 6, 15 and 16. All of this is still with a view to the unification of the polarized camps of saints in Rome, a tragic situation, who must begin to see themselves together as a new creation, Galatians 6.15, all together as the Israel of God in Christ, all together, Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, male and female, slave and free. Savage, Scythian means savage. The Scythians are called savages. People that came from, tribes that came from the area of the Black Sea, Ukraine. They were savage tribes. Scythian. So if you were called a Scythian, you were called a savage. And Paul says, there is no Scythian, barbarian, slave, or free. Christ is all, and he's in you all. If you're in high school, he's in hicks, jocks, nerds, whatever other names there are. We were from North Bennington, so to the Benningtonian kids, we were hicks. And if you're from Shaftesbury, a smaller town than North Bennington, you were the hicks to us. So whether hick or city folk, City slicker, Christ is all, and he's in you all. All of this is an appeal for them to be reasonable in a new way. Reasonable in a new way. To be responsible in a newness of life and to be in love. I'll close by saying this. What is Israel after all? Certainly not a people who have become the people of God through circumcision and observance of Moses' law. But they are the people who have died with the Messiah of Israel and who have been buried with him and raised with him and made to sit with him in heavenly spheres. That's Israel in truth Israel in praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, practice or works or deed, Israel indeed are the lovers of God, those in whose hearts the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God. So in this way, Romans 4 is pressing into Romans 9 through 11 and to the question of the identity of Israel, which brings us full circle around from many years ago with the insight of the Israel of God. It necessarily undid the false distinctions of dispensationalism. 
It undid so many distinctions, but brought new distinctions, that insight, and led us to the universal saving significance of Christ. My translation of 4.3 then is this. But what does the scripture say? Abraham faithfully trusted God, and God considered this fidelity as rectitude. That's why we went to the Dikaio words. Rectitude. Another, it's a one-word term for God-approved livingness. So now that it's already been established by a Christological reading of Habakkuk 2.4, which we're hammering out Sunday mornings, now that it's been established that a Christological reading of Habakkuk 2.4 in the Scripture, that the righteous one who will live by his faithfulness refers prophetically to Jesus. Therefore, Abraham is not the referent, not the one referred to in Habakkuk 2.4, that he lives by his faithfulness. Nor is he the one referred to in Romans 1.17, the one who lives by his faithfulness. Therefore, Abraham did not live because of his faithfulness. However, he did live faithfully as a kind of preview of the fidelity of Messiah and of our present participation in Messiah's fidelity. The only reason Abraham had faith is the unconditional promise of God in Genesis 18.18 and 22.18 that in your seed, and Paul said that's Christ, all the nations will be blessed. That unconditional, uncontingent promise to Abraham is what's ignited his faith. And so his whole life was kind of motivated by that faith, working by love, by the Spirit, because the Spirit is the one who made him believe that promise. And so Abraham's livingness was an example of God-approved livingness. Had nothing to do with circumcision, but it had nothing to do with not circumcision. Had nothing to do with law. It had nothing to do with not law. It had everything to do with Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. Because Jesus Christ is the author of faith, no matter where the faith is found. Read Hebrews 11, and you'll find out when you get to Hebrews 12. So just to give you a preview of coming attractions here, here's the point, and I'm going to reiterate this down the road. I want this to be understood. What is being dealt with here is not an argument about forensic or what we would call judicial justification. But what really is here is an argument about what constitutes the kind of livingness that God approves of. That's the argument. What is being dealt with again here is not an argument about forensic or judicial imputation or justification, but an argument about just what constitutes the kind of livingness that God approves. And it's not through obedience to the law, nor is it by just blowing off the law and judging the law keepers. It's a faith that works by love. It's a faith ignited by the gospel and by the Holy Spirit and working by love, which is poured into the heart by the Holy Spirit. And so in Romans 12, 1 and 2, 
Paul describes a transformation that occurs by a renewal of the mind, otherwise known as a radical epistemological transformation, R-E-T, not R-T-E, but R-E-T. In R-T-E, there's an R-E-T. In Romans, the epistle, there's a radical epistemological transformation so that the community of saints thinks and knows in terms of an altogether new reality. That's why Jesus said, I have a new law for you, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's a new reality with a new Torah. The Christian Jewish teachers in Galatia and the Christian Jewish teacher that Paul is in a dialectic of contradictories with in Romans the epistle, they say God approves of a livingness that results from observances of the law beginning with circumcision for the males and dietary and calendrical laws for both males and females leading to ultimately a thorough observance of all of Moses' law. And they found their rationale for this in a verse. I'm going to leave it with you and leave it open. Leviticus 18.5. They found their rationale for this in Leviticus 18.5, which says this, and I'm reading from the New English Translation of the Septuagint, came out as recently as 2007, worth having. He says, And you shall keep all my ordinances and all my judgments, and you shall do them. As for the things a person does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord your God. I'll just give you a hint. It's by a misinterpretation of that word from God that the Jewish teachers assumed that life and freedom comes by obedience to Moses' law. It's by a misinterpretation. So our job is to properly interpret it. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Romans has been the most, well, it's been the supreme challenge to me, Father, one of your servants in this time of our history. I say it's one of the most difficult, but you have been so utterly faithful to me and to this congregation to grant insights, insights that are not approved by a magisterium or a committee of men and women in a clerical, in a clerical way but insights that are given freely by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that in this place, the Spirit is present, and where the Spirit is, there's liberty. 